Thanks for listening to the Drummer's Weekly Groovecast. You can contact the show at twitter.com forward slash dwgroovecast and through Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Drummer's Weekly Groovecast. Good evening. I am warning you right now, if you touch my drums, I will stab you in the neck with a knife. Ain't it fucking. <laughs> Ain't it fucking. Mom! Lower it. I'm not gonna lower it. I have to do this now. I don't want you to play it, but lower it. We need a straight out? No, we had a problem. I mean, we tried to do everything we could. What do you mean? Well, you know what I mean. Next! Little trouble there. You're rushing. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Yeah! You know, I don't know if this hit and triple digits thing is like a springboard into the future or if like we're back at number one again and moving forward. We're back at scratching our head for ideas. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'll only speak for myself. Uh, Let's see. I, I was going to say, this thing has been self-perpetuating itself for a while, but now we're getting to the point it's kind of like, oh, man, we've hit a milestone. I mean, there's yeah. been milestones along the way, but... This one's awesome. Yeah. Well, l- let me say this. We've technically got a few more, and then we hit the two-year mark. And it's kind of, I don't know, is 100 anticlimactic, or would 104 be the anticlimactic one? Because, see, 100 is 100. You know, everybody looks like, oh, that's a nice round number. That's what we got to go with. Yeah. And then, you know, you get, well, it's not quite two years because in our whacked out system, 52 weeks is a year. So 104 would be the end of that second year, so to speak. Let's just not worry about the year. Let's go with the episodes. And then you get into that whole thing. Well, it's the end of the second year, beginning of the third year. It's like, I don't, you know, I don't know. I've already been called out on social media saying we've already done well over 100 episodes and blah, I'm blah, blah. I'm glad someone has the time to do that. You know what? That is the perfect segue to bring me into time. Time. Time and things to do. And, you know, we've joked about this in the past. We're beyond a joke now. We're at a real-life reality. And I am calling forward to all enterprising students, all instructors at colleges that listen to this show that have enterprising students, we need an intern. And I mean I'm being 100% honest on this. This unwieldy beast of a show is running me. I'm, I'm losing my mind. I'm regularly pulling 18, 20-hour days because... Keep in mind, folks, this show, you know, we do run this show weekly, but on top of that, John and I both play regularly, we teach, we have lives outside of it, and quite honestly, if you look at most of the other podcasts, one of those two things are are really not an issue with the others. You've got some podcasts where guys already have help and do stuff and then you have some guys who do stuff all of, all on their own but they really don't play or teach outside of it 
we're at a point now to where we need some help. And mm-hmm. let me tell you what we're looking for. We're looking for somebody who knows something about technology. We need somebody who knows something about SEOing, social media promotion, people who can do some research that can also help with some emails and contacting people and answering emails, that kind of stuff. And when I was talking with John about it, John also had a brilliant idea about just people who are not students also, even though if you are a student and you need some college credit, if you need some sort of something, we'll be happy to sign the paperwork to get you some college credit. But John, what were you mentioning a few minutes ago? I was just talking about there's a lot of musicians who have a lot of downtime. Yeah. And if you're into that kind of thing, the technical side of things, the promotion kind of things, anything like that, and you want to jump in and help us, that'd be awesome. I know I've spent 40 years trying to figure out what I did the last 40 years because I still am just, all I do is hit stuff and don't have any other skills, so it's bizarre. That's not, that that would not be bragging if anyone's wondering. I know you're not, but. It's the truth. Well, yeah, it's like just sit around like, what did I do with many a day and afternoons? And uh, so maybe uh, it's cool to jump in and be part of something that is a lot of fun. We will literally give you the keys to the car. You know, we'll give you some passwords and stuff. Dig in there and start doing some different things. But yeah, if anybody has the uh, uh, the wherewithal to want to do this stuff, reach out to the show. And here we'll go ahead and do our early promo, so we don't have to do it again. So. Go to our website, drummersweeklygroovecast.com. You can always get in touch with us through our email form that's on there. You've also got all of our social media contact information is on there as well. Of course, all the episodes, all the videos, blah, blah, blah. Swing by there. Drop us a line. Say what you want to say and why how you might be able to help us, and we'll get back to you. We always get back to everybody. Sometimes it takes us a little while. But that's because we're busy doing all the stuff that we've talked about. So absolutely drop us a line if you're interested in it or if you know somebody that's interested in it because we need somebody to start yesterday. So. Hey, let it be known. Um, Bill is the absolute driving force behind this. Puts in an unbelievable amount of time and uh, I just run my mouth. So this for now plea <laughs> this plea well why don't you do all that stuff John I I got I I'm not good at that I I do know his plight though I have other things going on that require a lot of attention and it is overwhelming so if you want to help us out and make this a little smoother sailing that would be really we'd be very forever grateful Thanks, Phil, for doing all you do, man. Hey, my pleasure. And, you know, one of the things that I do from time to time, which, again, John, you have set me up to perfection, that I'm going to bloviate forth. And and it's a little bit of shameful and shameless self-promotion on this thing. But I I wanted to make everybody aware of this because I'm rather, rather proud of this. Um, I just got published again. And Ooh. yeah, and it's it's a good one, man. This is a really really good one. I have uh, I've had a few things uh, published over the last twenty years in in various uh, large drumming magazines. We'll call it that. And you know, I've also had my association with Steve Smith, where I had some stuff published by him. Uh, but 
I had a really cool thing happen over the last week uh, that I'm now going to make public on the show, and I'll also put some links to it on our social media uh, when the time comes. But I just had a feature article published in Percussive Notes magazine, which uh, for all the folks who wear tweed jackets with elbow patches, that is our, uh, basically that's our our pedagogical journal is what it is. So that would be like according to a doctor, that would be like being put in JAMA, that Journal of American Medical Association magazine. Awesome. And so it's going to be coming out in the July 18, or July 2018 uh, edition, which should be available Man, almost at the time that this podcast comes out. And uh, the topic is on averted listening. Now, we can spend a whole podcast talking about what that actually means because, as you're probably well aware of since it's in that magazine, it's a little bit of a heady topic. Uh, but it's a concept on averted listening that you can apply to playing with clicks, sequences, or for that much, even just playing with other members in a band. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's one of those essential skills that everyone needs to develop. And I think it's something that I haven't really heard anybody else talk about this before, but I will guarantee you all of your favorite players, all of the greats have this skill and maybe either are not aware of it or maybe have not verbalized it in a particular way. So anyway, that's it. Be looking for the uh, July issue of Percussive Notes and uh, the topic is averted listening, and I'll put a little something something up on uh, social media for that. Big leaguing, I love it. I uh, well, the old blind squirrel can find that acorn every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and before we get into the topic today, we have a little bit of that nasty uh, business we have to take care of again. We lost a great a couple of days ago. Um, the wonderful uh, Memphis-based and Nashville-based legend uh, DJ Fontana passed away at a ripe old age. I think he was like 87. That's um, right. He was up there, but he was one of Elvis's original drummers. He played with Elvis uh, from the very earliest days up until the late 60s uh, before Ronnie Tut took over. So, uh, yeah, we lost him. And, you know, one other quick note about him, and I probably wouldn't have known this if, again, I hadn't, lived in Memphis for a few years, but did you know that DJ Fontana uh, did a whole bunch of sessions in Nashville back in the 70s? Yeah, yeah, like that. He was kind of along the line of Kenny Malone. He did a lot of that yes. old school country stuff. He sure did. Yeah, that's why he moved there, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I wasn't I really aware of that. I wasn't aware of to the extent, but I'm certainly aware of him doing stuff and there were a couple of producers that loved using him dj fontana has moved on to his great reward man there is a lot to be said for that era of drummers because you talk about brand new approach and vibe and eight notes alone we take that for granted mm -hmm. you know you listen to that chuck berry stuff real early on or some of the new orleans stuff in that same period you know a lot more of a swing kind of undercurrent and breaking out of that some of these guys we we just we don't realize how this is way before the beatles and you know like that that's some that's some pioneering right there yeah um one of the gentlemen that i know that played on some of those early tracks used to talk about just the challenges of just recording back in oh, those days yeah. one mic that kind of stuff like yeah crazy. 
one microphone, being careful that, <clears throat> you know, you don't hit certain drums too hard because it actually distorted those microphones mm -hmm. and, you know, everybody was all in the same room. So, yeah, there was a certain series of recording chops you had to have back then that's just not even applicable to these days. A friend of ours just did a session at Sun with a one mic and he was playing drums. Yeah. That was pretty cool to see. One last thing about DJ Fontana and, you know, when you talk about those uh, late 60s, 70s Nashville recordings uh, for those country, those traditional country artists. One of the things that we just have alluded to briefly on this show, but something that is just wickedly difficult to do also is if you go back and listen to all those old tunes that had what they call that Ray Price shuffle, mm -hmm. where you're playing a brush in one hand and then like a cross stick with the other hand and you're either playing that brush on the snare drum or sometimes maybe on the hi-hat try playing that thing and recording that for three and a half four minutes brutal see how you do on that with in the days of no pro tools yeah you got to be on your game john for episode 101 we got a couple things we're going to do today and they kind of relate to one another 105 one <laughs> Just <laughs> it'd be sure. like 113 really right uh, I thought what we would do is we'd do a little combo show today. Something mm -hmm. we've never done this before, but I thought it'd be kind of fun. And one of the things that we're going to end up with today is we were given the opportunity uh, to review and subsequently interview an author uh, that has been doing print interviews with some of these great arena rock drummers. He's a fellow named Jake Brown, and he has recently published a book that he sent us called Beyond the Beats. And it is really, really good. And I'm very critical of this kind of stuff. But this guy, he's an actual musician. He's a drummer. And he asks a lot of questions that we would ask. And he just put together this, this wonderful book. He sent it to us. I ended up doing a short Skype interview that we're going to tag on the end of this this episode. And what I thought we would do to kind of lead up to that is to do an episode of our picks because technically this, <clears throat> this book is one of our picks. But we've done a ton of different segments for the two past two years, which have basically been these picks as far as like, okay, here's a great drummer, which we're going to continue doing those, and we'll continue doing great underrated tracks, and we'll do these great pieces of gear. But something I thought might be kind of cool is why don't we do a show of picks that are not, they don't have to be necessarily related just to great drummers or great pieces of gear, even though it could include a great piece it of gear. It probably will be. Probably will, but things that are inspiring or things that might make our lives as creative individuals enhanced or better or even inspire creativity. So what we're going to do is John and I are going to do a few of our picks and you're going to see they're going to be all across the board and they're going to be things that have been valuable to us and that have been useful to us and maybe you'll find something that you like out of there. So John, I'm going to go first. Is that cool? No problem. All right. Uh, the first one, that I'm going to lob out there is a wonderful work and organizational tool that is 100% free. And John, you know the old saying, if it's free, it's for me. And I was hipped to this by my lovely and talented wife, who is a jack-booted thug 
of a corporate manager, and she uses this this tool regularly, and it's called Trello. And what I'm going to call Trello for to just verbally describe it, but everyone just go to Trello.com and you can see this is what we use for the podcast. This is what we throw ideas up there. This is how we keep things as organized as we possibly can. It is a virtual cork board or virtual bulletin board to where you can create these lists of we'll call them index cards mm-hmm. so just imagine we have a cork board or a bulletin board that we have a bunch of push pins that hold up index cards well essentially what they do is they just list out the different ideas different topics different whatever that you're working on and you can sort these different things by date the oldest ones first the newest ones first you can edit them to say whatever you want. You can click on them. They'll open up, and you can put different notes or even attachments. Like, for example, if you've done an outline for a show, you put the show topic up. You can click and add an attachment of that outline where somebody can grab it if they want to and look at it. And, of course, you can send people invitations to view the work or to even uh, modify it put their own stuff up there or modify the different things that are that you've already included up there. It's all super ridiculously user-friendly. I mean, it's incredibly easy to just get on there and basically hit the ground running. A lot of drag-and-drop features on there. If you don't like something in one column, you can just click on it, pull it over to the next column, click on it, drag it down underneath four or five other index cards. It's great. I like it a lot. That's the app or the website that powers the Drummer's Weekly Groovecast. I love it. And like I said, you can also, I mentioned app. There's an app for tablets and phones as well to where you can access that same desktop version and make all the same different or the same kinds of changes if you like. Mm-hmm. So that's my first pick, Trello.com. I use that to just kind of get focused on direction and ideas and not be overwhelmed week to week we had a running list of stuff and it was a big help well and and also it's really cool to be able to put dates on the little index cards to kind of move your shows for us is Mm -hmm. what we do we move our shows and show numbers to where we can see how far in advance we are where we need to go to get to this it's just it's a great little organizational tool great it's it's very like i said user-friendly really helps workflow keeps me organized also hopefully so that we don't repeat the same stuff as well so trello.com great find john what you what's your first pick I want to direct everyone to this amazing drum restorer who's a friend of mine in Australia. His name's Steel Turkington. And he is doing the most brilliant work. It's mind-blowing. Is he also like the star of an adventure show? Steel Turkington. In my opinion, he is. Because it's adventurous to see the work he does. (laughs) Yeah, he has a neat, neat, like, car that talks and... You know, all kinds of weird Love stuff. it. No, uh, Steel has a company called Kentville Drums. And he he has a Facebook page. He also has an Instagram account. Um, Kentville underscore drums, I think it is. But, man, the work he's doing is just mind-blowing. And I, I'm just glued to that all the time, just seeing his solutions, his tools, his 
before and after pictures, and I, I think he's just one of the foremost restorers right now going, and his attention to detail and his love for it is just mind-blowing. So just something, a little diversion, but fascinating if you're into my world of, you know, getting and buying flipping drums, there's always something to fix. Even as just drummers, we always got something we got to deal with from cleaning to, you know, fixing or, you know, solutions to problems with gear. This guy is the man. I just can't say enough about him. Is he one of these guys that can literally do anything? And what I mean by that is he is he one of these guys that he can get some ragged out Slingerland Radio King drum set and then like relacquer it in the whole nine yards? Yes. Yeah. It's it's it. There's it's almost it seems like I, I don't know if I can't can think of something he can't do. You know, other than manufacture a shell from molten steel you know i don't know yeah. it's just incredible he, he's he's bought some things from me and that's how we got to know each other and then with social media okay. coming into prominence i was really able to see his his world a lot better and it's he also makes uh he does manufacture kangaroo hide heads and the first thing that goes through my mind has nothing to do with poor kangaroos, but how warped I am is I wonder how easy they are to keep in tune. Probably not <laughs> not much easier than cowhide, but nonetheless, he has a, an abundance of said hide, I guess. Yeah. Over there. But man, this guy is a monster. He is a magician. It's incredible. Man, that's a heck of a call. Yeah. My next uh, pick that I'm going to have is we're going to step away somewhat from the drum and gear genre. And it's a YouTube channel, and it has to do with exercise. I have been really interested in yoga for about the last eh, probably six to seven years, and I got involved doing it when I did P90X arguably the hardest day out of all of those workouts during P90X was the yoga day. And people are sitting here going, oh, well, what about you had to do freaking 200 pull-ups on one day and 200 push-ups? Yeah, that's tough. You just got to see what I'm talking about. If you've never done the, the yoga on P90X, it's about an hour and 40 minutes of just absolute mind-numbing technique and body weight resistance style training mm. it's incredible and so i got i got interested in that and then really over the past several months i got back into it again by looking at some different yoga instructors on video mm -hmm. and another thing let me go ahead and throw this out if if my word is not good enough or doesn't inspire you enough a couple of our great drumming masters highly subscribe to the yoga theories as well and that is steve smith does yoga regularly and so does the wonderful and criminally underrated george marsh uh, out in the bay area just he's a master yogi uh, but i found a channel that has a yoga instructor based out of austin texas her name is erica vitra and let me say this also, gentlemen, she is easy on the eyes hey, as hey, well. Hey, I, hey, I didn't say anything untoward there, Mr. Chalden. Oh, she's got mad skills. And 
here's what I want to say about yoga that is so appealing to me mm -hmm. is for any musician who is, you know, it, it, that loves the aspect of technique and loves the aspect and the minutia of, of what makes us move and what makes us, uh, what makes things flow and what makes things feel good. Yoga is a very good natural extension for exercise. Uh, I was legitimately looking for something outside of a gym style setting. In other words, yeah, I, I still like doing basic cardio and I still like doing, you know, weights and weight training and that kind of stuff. But there's something about yoga that is a very creative yet technique based thing that involves breathing, which is also very important to what we do. I, I just want to encourage everyone to check out Erica Vitra's yoga studio. She has a website. You can go, and, I, and this is a good time for me to mention that I'm going to include all these different links to these things that John and I are picking into the show notes of this podcast. So check it out, Erica Vitra's yoga. So um, my next thing was just something I stumbled on to the other day that I'd seen in the past, and I'm, I'm pretty sure many of you have, but I just... I was reminded of how much it, I related to it. It's a short film called The Drummer by Bill Block. And it's kind of this day in the life of this guy who's struggling and still has the dream and all that. And I'll leave it at that, but... It's awesome. You can go it's to great. the website, uh, thedrummershort.com, and probably on YouTube. But if you just do a search for The Drummer by Bill Block... Check it out. And that's all I need to say. Uh, if you want to bring something full circle, do you know who the actor is mm -mm. in that? That is Dave Ratajk, who has passed on. Mm -hmm. He has died. But Dave Ratajk was a gentleman that I've mentioned on this show before. I think when I was speaking with John Lawless about some of those bus and truck shows we've done down at the Fox, Dave Ratajk was the Broadway drummer for the uh, musical Titanic. And I actually contacted him, and he was that sweetheart of a guy that not only did he take time to talk to me about some of the things, hey, watch out for this, watch out for that, he actually drew a diagram of his setup of how to put all the different instruments so you can actually make these uh, clean and quick segues from instrument to instrument to instrument without getting sidetracked. He emailed all that stuff over to me, and, man, it saved me hours of work and experimentation of trying to get things to where they needed to be so love it yeah man i, I just saw that the other day again and it's awesome i'm sure some of you haven't but you should so great it should be recommended viewing and i will again put the link in the show notes fantastic my next pick is a book and it's not a method book it's an actual reading book, as we would say back in East Tennessee. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, it's a really creative and somewhat controversial book, especially controversial over in uh, Europe. And it's a series of books, actually. The main one I'm going to talk about is Volume 1, because that's where you would start on virtually anything, of course. Uh, but I learned about these books, I don't know, it was several years ago. And it is from a Norwegian author named Carl Ove Knosgaard, and he wrote a series of books called My Struggle, 
and they're like my struggle volume one volume two volume three volume four and so on and it became an absolute sensation over in europe and then it was ended up it ended up being translated into several different languages and eventually found its way over to the U.S. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I read quite a bit and I read quite a bit for inspiration and for creativity and that sort of thing. And essentially what these autobiographical style books are is he basically verbalizes things that we as creatives have running through our mind all the time, but you never say them. He he talks about <laughs> the he talks about the the isolation of being a creative and how you have to be alone a lot of times. And he he elaborates on the mundane aspects of what it's like sitting in front of a computer and taking a look out at the window and seeing what these people that are walking across the street that have like briefcases and stuff never really have to go through from a standpoint of a creative uh, being standpoint. He talks about these things so mundanely as far as like he has children and how how he finds such a, a, a relief and how he finds such pleasure in changing a diaper that has weight to it because he knows that this being is functioning properly. <laughs> You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, it, it's it's one of the most intriguing and interesting books because it's one of those type of readings that you can find yourself on almost every page. <laughs> you know, it's like I've had that thought before. Like he'll talk about being at some sort of a gathering and it'll be, say, some kind of a cocktail party or some sort of an event where it's just the general public mixed in and how he literally does not relate to anyone else in the room and how no one else can relate to him because of what they do and how he's obsessed by being a writer. It's absolutely fascinating. So check out Carl Ove Knosgaard. And if you can't remember that name, again, I'll put it in the show notes, but if you just put My Struggle into Amazon... It'll come up because it's, it is a popular book, and it's one of those that really speaks to creatives. My Struggle by Carl Ova Knosgaard. John, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, our final pick of the day uh, is a wonderful book by an author based out of Nashville. It's a fellow named Jake Brown. Um, he has done something that, I don't know, I'm not aware that anybody's ever done it before, or at least has done it to the level that he's done it. He wrote a book called Beyond the Beats, which is now available. You can find it pretty much on anywhere you buy books, Amazon, your local bookstores. He has got a paperback version, and he's got a proper hardback, we'll call it kind of a coffee table style book. But, you know, it's not a book that's just all, it's not not a book of pictures. I mean, it's actual written print interviews, mm -hmm. which are done very, very well. And so when he sent us the book, I had a chance to read through it, and the, the first one or the first person he covers is Tommy Lee, who uh, was one of your picks on one of our shows that we did a Much while back. Much to the chagrin of, of, of Lee. young Lee J. Falco. <laughs> but he does a wonderful job. And, and this first book, let me go ahead and also put just a little bit of context in before we actually just run into the interview because I don't want to give too much away because Jake does a ridiculously good job of talking about it and, and where he came up with the idea and basically the construction of the book. But what he did was 
he is a self-professed child of the 80s, and we all know that arena rock and hard rock was a major player during those times. And he came to this conclusion that um, in recent years, a lot of these wonderful drummers that really made that genre possible and made it as popular as it was, it's kind of been swept under the carpet a little bit. And so he wanted to reach out to these arena rock drummers and put together a book that spoke to what they were thinking at those times, who their influences were, and what they're doing now. So without any further ado, let's give a listen to our interview that we had with Jake Brown. So Jake, why don't you tell us just a little bit about your background, especially that musical background, and what led you into writing these style of books? Uh, well, let's see. I have been doing this 20 years, and I got into it kind of by a fluke. And um, I was working at a record label in Los Angeles writing kind of ad, you know, catalog copy and press statements. Uh, you know, uh, I wound up meeting somebody who needed a book written for somebody that they represented, and I had absolutely zero interest in that particular 80s hair metal artist, just to leave it generic, but I said, I have an idea for a couple of books, one on Nikki Six of Motley Crue and one on Suge Knight of Death Row Records. And she, I said, if you could find a publisher, I'll write both. And so she took them out and, and this isn't like 99 to, this is like 2000. So, uh, we sold Suge Knight and, um, from there, man, I just, as I started writing, I wrote for a company called Amber Books and a publisher named Tony Rose who gave me my start and kind of believed in me when I didn't even, I'm, I'm a record producer. So I, I, I moved to Nashville in 03 from New York and I was fully content to just do one of these every once in a while, but he kept pushing me to put out. So we put out books on Biggie Smalls, Dr. Dre, 50 Cent, Kanye West, um, Jay-Z, uh, <clears throat> Tupac Shakur stayed authorized to Tupac in the studio which launched the In the Studio series that I have a trademark on, and I've won an you know, that, that's, that series has won awards, uh, won an award for the Tori Amos in the studio, but it covered that, in authorized terms, opened me up into rock and roll. So I started writing books with, I got very lucky and got Anne Nancy, Anne and Elsie, Anne Nancy Wilson from Hearts to be interested in doing a collaborative heart in the studio. <clears throat> um, then met Lemmy from Motorhead, bless his heart, uh, when I pitched him. I met him writing Jasmine St. Clair's memoir. Anyone who knows who Javin St. Clair is, she's a, a very controversial porn star from the 90s. And so usually through one book, you meet another party and it just kind of goes like that. And uh, it just kept going, man. I did Rick Rubin in the studio, um, ACDC Motorhead. Those all came out in England. And then also here, they're through British publishers. So that opened me up into British markets and I just kept going. And so here we are 44 books later. And how I got into these books and specifically Beyond the Beats, I uh, talked him into and co-wrote Penny Aronoff's memoir, John Mellencamp, Fogarty Drummer. And as I was, I, I also write series that focus in vignette, almost like a chapter anthology link. So you get the front end of the person's life, whatever kind of family musically they came up in, their influences, first instrument, bands, etc., all the way through to the songs that made them famous, how they were created, how they were written. And National Songwriters, a book series like that, Behind the Boards, Record Producers, um, Hip Hop Hits came out last fall. And I thought there's a, there's a drummer anthology series in here. Because I kept interviewing <clears throat> drummers that were peers of Kenny who were talking about him. And I said, man, there's never been a series like this. Because if you read a Rolling Stone article, your average word count for drummers is two paragraphs. So long story short is I'll just go through them because it's easier for me to visually look. <clears throat> I had Chad Smith, 
and Taylor Hawkins numbers and Stephen Perkins. Stephen Perkins, Stephen Perkins is a personal hero of mine. As a kid myself, I play seven instruments. I grew up drumming by ear and alone of these records. I knew Tommy Lee from previous literary projects. So I reached out to those four guys and three of them initially signed on, that being Chad Smith, uh, Taylor Hawkins, and Steve Perkins. I think they all did because they felt there hadn't really been a book like this. And, and then Joey Kramer signed on, the Lars Ulrich, kind of snowballed. So um, in this book, additionally to the guys I mentioned, Tommy, you've also got Jimmy Chamberlain of Smashing Pumpkins, Kenny, Doug Cosmo Clifford from Creedence Clearwater, Bon Jovi's drummer, Tico Torres. I met Bon Jovi doing Kenny's book and reached out to their management and got him. Uh, Steve Smith, The Journey, and Matt Storm of Guns N' Roses. So there's 12 in total, and they encompass, without any argument, the 12 biggest rock bands in the world that are still playing the arenas, still playing the stadiums. Uh, around the world, they're admired by kids who speak languages that they can't even relate other than through the music. And I wanted to know what it was like from everything, from like who first sat them down, put the sticks in their hands, I'm getting through the little rap here, and, and sat them down behind the kit, all the way up through like, what's it like in their 50s to play like they had to in their 20s with the same energy and the same, everybody underestimates, as you guys well know, how hard a drummer's job is how many balls they're juggling. Imagine Tommy Lee upside down on a roller coaster playing the exact beats he's supposed to play with a crowd below him and the showmanship and the driving the band and driving the audience and the imagination with the parts they do. So this book just really gets into all of that in fundamental in-depth terms. Well, the having an advanced copy of that, thank you very much. Sure. Um, I want to compliment you on your writing style, first oh. off. Uh, prior to doing any of this writing did you study writing at all at any school or totally. you just did it on your own well I, i'm i'm uh like if you sat me down in front of a test i'd get an f right but i always uh i i never really got any training at it. i just was always in ap writing classes and i always wrote and it's really funny <clears throat> when i was in uh high school i would write songs about uh, write uh, uh i wrote a lot of songs there's a lot of bands I was in bands since i was in eighth grade but i wrote a lot of papers about Bruce Springsteen songs. That was in this really huge, heavy Bruce Springsteen period, uh, especially live 75 to 85. And so I would write songs about like, uh, write papers about songs about Born to Run, and then I would just like analyze them. And my teacher, uh, they would love them and have me read them in class. And then like, sometimes people would be like, why didn't you write about this song, dog? Because I went to a pretty urban high school in Washington, D.C. And and I'd be like, oh, yeah. So I would try to write about a rap song. And so indirectly, I suppose I was kind of training myself. But then, um, I, yeah, man, I just I wanted to um, get into the record business. So I moved to L.A. and found that was a futile enterprise um, from the label side. Uh, I worked for a couple and then I just started doing this. So it's, it's a good medium because I can bounce around and go to different styles. And even within these anthologies, book two of this series, I'm interview, I interviewed Stuart Copeland on Tuesday for it, in fact. Uh, it's got 21 drummers, everyone from The Clash, Tupper Heaton from The Clash, Nico McBrain from Iron Maiden, all the way over to like Steve Gadd and Michael Shreve of Santana and Tower Powers drummer David Garibaldi in Chicago and The Pixies and just Stevie Ray Vaughan. And, and so the second book covers like an entire spectrum of styles. This is really more hard rock, heavy metal. Book three is all female drummers. It's every female rock drummer. And book four is going to be like Nashville, bluesgrass kind of stuff but book one man i really felt this was the heaviest hitters i could come up with and even just looking on some of these quotes on the back you know these guys talk in such candid i mean it's an exciting book because it takes you from like their childhood where you have like matt storm sneaking out of his house to go play shows in the sunset strip and and chad smith's dad getting him ice cream bucket you know baskin robbins buckets for his first drum set and tommy lee's dad 
cut taking half of his real garage where he made a living as an auto mechanic and walling it off and soundproofing it so he could play in there, helping with pyrotechnics all the way through. You know, you would be shocked maybe at the amount of jazz influence these cats have. So you got okay, Kiko Torres studies under Elvin Jones, uh, who's a very famous New York jazz drummer. Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa come up in this uh, repeatedly. Guys like Steve Smith from Journey and uh, uh, Jimmy Chamberlain from the Smashing Pumpkins are both jazz drummers. Uh, Jimmy Chamberlain Project, when he's not on the road with the Pumpkins, he's playing there. Steve Smith, of course, Vital Information uh, <clears throat> and other projects. And then it just rolled through everything like to, you know, Joey Kramer taking you inside the first drum solo we ever did. Five years into Aerosmith, 1975, at a stadium gig. Because Steven Tyler kicked him in the butt and said, go out there and do one. And, and Taylor ta Hawkins talked about being terrified before he goes on stage at Wembley, much like maybe a hockey player or, a, you know, an athlete would have throw up and then go score 12 points. So... <laughs> You, I'm stealing that analogy from a movie, but you basically get yeah. the, the gist of it. And so, um, and, and each of their stories is individually compelling too, because you know Doug Cosmo Clifford will take you all the way from meeting John Fogarty in junior high, like walking past the music room and walking in there, and then bam, them playing for 12, 12 years before they got signed and became Creedence Clearwater. Um, so you get like really the, the true story of behind how hard these guys were. Tico Torres, ten years before he joined Bon Jovi, even auditioned for Kiss. So. There was a huge amount of, of what I call journeyman years that these guys spent as session players, as live club players, as and it goes all the way back to their garage bands, and it, and it hammers home the other subtext of this book is the advice for drummers. So if you're a kid just reading this, you want to plug in millennial kids, stream along on Spotify, or watch the YouTube videos of the famous solos they're talking about, um, or the parts that they play, if you're trying to learn how they did the part, you can really read about the rudiments all the way up to kind of what inspired them by feel. Also, John Bonham has paid an enormous tribute by every one of these guys, man. They talk about the, how, how huge an influence. He's almost, and you know, guys like Pete Moon, Tommy Aldridge, of course I mentioned Buddy Rich uh, and Gene Krupa, Ringo, um, Mitch Mitchell, uh, you know, all of the greats um, that came out of that first generation of rock and roll. Dino Dinelli, who's also in book two, uh, and as well as Carmen Apice, uh while I'm promoting but they were all influenced by John Bonham in this unique way to everything else. And so you get, you get performances we break down, like Steve Perkins, you can hear it in everything, but uh, Tommy Lee, uh, from Shout Out the Devil to Kickstart, you know, for Jane's Addiction, it's everything from Ted just a minute to three days, depending on how well you know these catalogs. Um, Metallica, of course, Lars Ulrich, you know, invented a style of metal. So he talks about, takes you all the way back to being a tennis player in Belgium, and and I kind of analogize him first getting his beat off the racket, and then he transitions to moves to the States to be a pro tennis player, decides I'm not even going to compete with these people, puts an ad in the recycler, meets James Hetfield, and then you get the whole story of all of the Metallica hits uh, as they were developed through jamming. Jamming is another huge part of this book, and it's a piece of advice that every one of the players say. It's so important for young drummers. Play along to your records, put your earbuds in, and play along on your drums, but get out there, school band, garage band, talent show, kid around the corner with a guitar, your brother, whoever it is that you're going to musically start interacting with, do it as early as you can. So it, it covers all those bases. Man, Jake, you've done a fantastic job illustrating yeah. the depth of the interviews that you've done. And to just huh. illustrate the point to the listeners, the book that I received is over 300, <clears throat> 300 pages long. And I want to ask you, because I know how difficult it is to, to put these type of interviews together, how long did it take you to complete this book from the time you started writing it to the time it came out? Well, bear in mind if, that I do, I mean, I do it every day full time. Right. So for me, I write three or four books a year. I'm working on three or four things at once. And what was fun about this one 
is that I'm able on like a Monday to grab an interview. Like I got um, guys for book two here. I got Alan White um, and uh, Phil Jones who played on Freefall and all that Tom Petty solo stuff. Part one of Stuart Copeland. So I'll grab that in the morning and it doesn't, you know, you spend a night preparing questions. I know these guys catalogs so well. And I, I, I grew up in the best decade of music ever. I'm going to say it was the 1980s because you had everything that was coming in from the 60s and 70s and influence. There's some bands that were already around and still relevant that you went back and discovered their old catalogs. Others who you were um, maybe like, you know, you heard them do a cover song and then you went back to see who that was that originally did it. However you want to do it. Your older brother's record collection. Uh, I didn't have an older brother, but Vintage Vinyl Record Store in St. Louis. Uh, I used to go from like fourth grade. I would ride my bike over there and raid their their record bins. And so my parents started letting me go to concerts in like fifth and sixth grade. They dropped me off there instead of the mall. And so I, my exposures to music led me to be able to do this because I just know these catalogs so well. But I also, um, I try to, you know, all these drummers, I give them my word, they get their full story. And then also we would set it up such that there was no like, all right, guys, we're at, 15 pages, we got to stop. Chad Smith was on almost four hours. Uh, Tommy, as much as I get the sense, he sometimes doesn't really care to talk about Motley Crue's song. I'll tell you one funny. Uh, I was I was interviewing Joey Kramer, and I'm pretty trained to, you know, if I get an hour, I stick to the hour, and then I'll ask for a part two. But I try to get as much in as I can, because sometimes that's all you're going to get. And uh, we go through Walk This Way and Mamakin and Back in the Saddle. And I'm trying to not ask him about, like, Dude Looks Like a Lady and Ragdoll. I'm trying to ask him about, like, the classic. 70s stuff we get to about song nine and i'm not we aren't going on long because in some t- cases these guys are happy to break these down for a half hour he was like hey jake hey jake man enough about the songs and i was like <laughs> i was like sorry because i thought i didn't hear him right he's like yeah man i think we've covered the songs and then we, and then it allowed us to break into all these other areas about live playing and advice and rocking and roasting his coffee company but i had i, I appreciated the candor with which they both would, you know, because some songs, and I, I bring that up because without giving other examples, some drummers don't want to talk about certain songs that you would think they want to talk about because they can't stand them. And I'm not going to put anybody under the bus for that, but they can't either, they either didn't like them in the first place or they can't stand playing them night after night. There was another interesting point of the challenge these guys have in continuing to make these songs original sounding, not just to the audience where they have to keep the same tempo or, you know, basic structure intact of the beat time, but to play it totally differently than they did 30 years ago for their own amusement, their own entertainment to keep them interested in getting and doing it every night. Because imagine if you had to play do pa to do do pa the same way every night. So Joey Kramer made a point about some of those songs. I asked him, he said, you know, I played those totally differently now than I did 40 years ago. And I appreciated when they pushed back a little and wanting to go, let's talk about the song in this way, because that's, you know, those sort of interactions get you to a much better answer because then they're not giving you some token you know, BS thing that they would give, a, you know, a drum magazine necessarily about the rudiment of the part when they want to talk about the passion or the feel of it or what first, you know, another favorite thing you get in here a lot are surprises about what muses inspired certain songs you'd have never thought of. You know, oh, that was a ripoff of this 18th century drum thing. And you'll also get a lot of stories um, about guys like, you know, Tico Torres talking about the opening role of Living on a Prayer, all the way to like Jimmy Chamberlain with Today, they needed that that opening military march. They didn't know how to start the song. The intros are so important sometimes to these songs, and they're so subtle. Matt Storm talks about do 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 do, and that that simplistic sounding November Rain riff that he said he got a million bits of trouble about over there. But Axel articulated to him that he wanted a specific signature thing to tie together a strange "Don't Cry in November Rain." 
So think of the challenge of the thousand possibilities with the pressure of being the brand new drummer, the biggest band in the world, and you have to come up with these, uh, you know, kind of thing. So you get all of that honesty too. I, I was really quite proud of it um, because sometimes these books, uh, they all come out all right, but sometimes I'm having to supplement the drummer's answer with like, <clears throat> you know, a, a cool quote from an old magazine that describes the part better than I necessarily would from like Cream. And then you get to inject. I try to sometimes tastefully inject like a little sentence of a review or something so, you, so the reader can also kind of get a sense of the magazines that just aren't around anymore, even in digital print, that like Hit Parade or Kerrang, uh, the archives of these magazines, Metal Edge, um, you know, drum, there's some drum magazines, matter of fact, that are quoted in this book that aren't even in print anymore. So we tried to play a bit of homage to the media that did cover these guys, but it was scant in some cases. So this is really the first time some of them open up in real depth about them. Interesting. Now, that leads me to ask you that it mm -hmm. seems like, man, you've got such a good rapport with these guys. And I'm you, a musician. Yeah. Right. So that and that it you've got the type of thing going where you've read so many different interviews with these guys, and many of these guys have done so many interviews that you kind of know, you know, we don't need to cover this ground, or maybe we should cover this ground because we haven't seen it before or heard it before. But maybe. in particular... Yeah, in particular, the thing I want to ask you now is coming into these interviews, yeah. do any of the drummers themselves or maybe even, say, their publicists or handlers, do they ever go, Jake, we're not going to talk about this. We don't want to talk about any perceived like drug use or any per yeah, personal life problems. Um, I'll t I make that clear. And in, and in over 40 books in 20 years, I've never used an unnamed source. I hate it. Yeah. I, think it I think it's ruined journalism without getting into that. Um, especially like political journalism and other things that used to be, you know, remember the editorial page used to be on section eight, page eight. Now it's on the front page. So to answer your question, there's the same vein of that sometimes in music writing, you get music writers and, and I'm not this type of writer and I'm not going to name anyone who is, but I grew up read. That's all I read growing up along with like Elmore Leonard books. So, uh, I, I, you can get a lot of like writers that kind of like to do a little bit of an extra long intro rather than getting right to talking with the person. And sometimes the, per the star that you're interviewing is going to answer that question a lot more interestingly than you can write about it. So my attitude is to try to, if you'll notice in this book, I keep my narrative clipped to like three or four sentences, and then the drummer talks. A matter of fact, finishing the audio book, it's a hellacious process, but we're grinding away finishing up the edits on that, where I talk, then the drummer talks, the actual audio of the drummer, then I read the drummer. But the idea to answer your question is to, I always make clear to them up front, I'm uninterested in any of that. Um, I don't want to know about drugs. I don't, because, you know, to be honest with you, most times the drummers aren't the ones doing all that stuff, man. They may drink after shows. Drummers don't go on stage drunk, and drummers that tell you they do are probably lying to you. Uh, they may when they're in their, like, punk rock years, but as they get to be 30s and 40s, they're doing, these guys are not, like, backstage, you know, having having orgies. I mean, they're playing, they're doing calisthenic workouts, they're doing exercise bikes, some of them are meditating, some of them are, uh, 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 hanging out with their kids. It's a very different environment. And when they get to the studio, you got to bear in mind, and I say this, I've said this in a lot of these, these interviews for this book, because it was made clear, point, made clear to me a lot over and over. You know, a guitar player can miss a lick and you might not notice it. Singer can miss a word and throw it out to the audience. A drummer can't miss a beat. So the drummer's responsibility is so underestimated and underappreciated and unsung. Uh, it's heroic. I mean, it is, because they do so much and they have got to do so much, like, not just to cater to the band, but bear in mind the audience, too. And they've got to also, um, 
you know, make sure that there's not a sing you know, the technical side, the kits, the sticks. I tried to ask as much about endorsements and things of what, oh, yeah, I've played Tamlis for three years. Well, why do you play Tamlis? What do you like about them? Do you like their durability? Do you like certain types of shells? Do you like certain types of heads? Now, a lot of these guys get into the point where once they're, they're famous, they, they have the luxury of the drum companies making them kits for free, right, just so they'll go out and play them. But we try to cover every spectrum of that, and I stay away from, in the same time, any of that uh, drug stuff because, quite honestly, too, the reason that's that 30 drummers over the two books, uh, probably three with the girls, it's almost 40, signed on to do these is that I prom is that I, I really want to ask about them and their life and their story. And, you know, so we all know Tommy Lee went to jail. We all know that if you're a fan of his, you know we wrote the Methods of Mayhem record, a lot of it through calling the payphone from his cell and leaving uh, uh, demo ideas on his payphone, on his uh, home phone answering machine. I didn't need to ask him about jail, but I but I, I did write about it as a prelude to asking about methods and implying that he doesn't want to answer that again. So it's the other thing you can gauge from some of these guys of, um, you know, uh, uh, respectfully, you can ask them about former players and bands that they had a really great pocket with. And then that way you're, you're asking about the music. You're not asking about what tension helped a song's performance or crap like that. You know what I mean? So it's a way to sort of, yeah, there's a way to keep it pure of any of that stuff. And if you've been doing it long enough, I'm sure you know, you know, you interview a lot of people. You know, sometimes people will just also shift off an answer if they are uncomfortable. And it might not even have to do necessarily with a person. It might, again, have to do with a song or a record. you got to remember, too, a lot of these guys were first recording back in sonic eras that some sounded really cool and some they really can't stand and wish they could go back and redo, right? Uh, because the, the, the studios... And then others talk with excitement about guys like Bob Rock. You know, I quote him where I can in here with Tommy and Lars talking about all the groundbreaking work they did you know, with the sounds of the record. So it, and in some other cases, Bruce Fairbain, who's passed away. In a lot of cases, I try to ask also about the producers and their roles in helping these guys evolve the sonics of their sound on record because that's where they get a lot of their, their uh, championing too is the fact that, well, they were the first guy they ever heard play a blah, blah, blah. Well, that has some to do, a lot to do with the drummer, the way they play, how they tune the drums. But the producers, we wanted to also talk about. Awesome. Now, I'm going to ask you a little bit of an unfair question. It's kind of like you got to got to pick your favorite kid out of this. Now, I'm not going to ask you about who your favorite interview is. Now, that's completely and totally unfair. And you've already told us about a couple of like really cool moments that you had. Is yeah. there one particular moment? It didn't even have to make the book. Maybe even just some sort of a reaction that someone had that you look back and you go, man, that is a really cool moment that I had with this drummer. Yeah, it was, it was probably... Uh... There were three or four of them, and then I got to hop off. Uh, I appreciate your time. Um, get to this other call. The four of them were one, Chad Smith signing on to the concept, two, Joey Kramer, who I didn't know, I had no relationship with, that couldn't personally sort of pitch him, signing on to the concept because he thought there hadn't really been this kind of book before. Lars Ulrich, because these just were acknowledgments of. of uh, Tommy, on a personal level, and I wrote a story with Billy Corgan for Tape Op. It was like a cover story on all his records. And uh, through one of the producers, I got back in touch with Tommy. That was a huge moment because he's my favorite drummer. And lastly, Doug Cosmo Clifford because Creedence Clearwater, I mean, we all grew up with that. And it blew me away when uh, when he signed on to do it because that, that authenticates the series. That lets you know that you've got something and that there's going to be interested readers, theoretically, because there's interested drummers. And you have to make that connection with any book. You know, you have to be able to, in the trade that I'm in, um, which is hyper-competitive, it's an extremely challenging 
you're only as relevant. I mean, you can have a catalog, but you're kind of only as relevant as what new things you're pulling out. So when you talk to these guys and they're excited, that means you're going to get that much more out of them. So that was that was my favorite thing was the how energetically and 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 not bored for the most part they were to talk about their songs. Man, Jake, fantastic, man! Thank you so much for coming on the show. You, Appreciate you having me on. Absolutely, you you've got a completely and totally captive audience of of people that are speaking your language and that you're speaking directly to with this book so they really appreciate it the drummers are speaking their language i appreciate it let's be the the, the 75 to 80 percent of this book is drummers and 20 percent is narrative well maybe 25 but about 75 percent i tried to keep it as 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 big with the drummers as possible so thank you for helping promote it and supporting it i appreciate it and i hope you guys have a great weekend absolutely thank you jake i appreciate it all right all right, folks, so that's Jake Brown uh, from Beyond the Beats. Make sure you visit uh, Amazon or anywhere that sells books and check out his book. You will not be disappointed. Good stuff. It is good stuff. Uh, all right, John, well, that brings to close episode 101. What? <laughs> Drummer's Weekly Groovecast 101. Hey, before I forget... Um, I, I don't know why this came to mind, but I want to remind everyone to consider using a gig checklist oh, before they it. leave. Yes. I don't know why that came to mind, but... Yes, you do. <laughs> maybe you should all consider doing a gig checklist. On Trello. On Trello. I like it. You like that? Or on your phone. or. You well, know. that would be on Trello, too. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, do that. Just, I mean, I, I've heard it's a good idea. Hey, you never know. You might end up forgetting something like your inner rig. I, nah. <laughs> I, I wouldn't. <laughs> I might, though. Right. Maybe. Which is why... Okay, maybe I would. Which is why I need an intern. Then you won't forget stuff in the other parts of your life. That's right. That's so, a great point. Well, once, once again, folks, yeah, if you do know of anybody who might be interested in helping us out being an integral part of the Drummer's Weekly Groovecast. Point them over to our website, drummersweeklygroovecast.com. Have them get in touch with us. We will get back to them. We desperately want some help on the aforementioned topics that we talked about at the beginning of the show. It would help us. It helped the show. It helped us be more organized, more creative, and to bring stuff to you from week to week. John, that's all I got, buddy. Love it, man. All right, man. Thanks for listening. Appreciate we, all of you. We will see you guys next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.